Anyone older than 40 knows that forgetfulness can be unnerving, frustrating, and sometimes terrifying. Our guest today embarked on a three-year journey to revive her brain using the latest that science has to offer. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Katherine Jacobson-Raymond. Ms. Raymond is an investigative journalist who writes for many national publications, including the New York Times Magazine. She is a fellow of the McDowell Colony and a member of the National Association of Science Writers. Her current book is called Carved in Sand, When Attention Fails and Memory Fades in Midlife. Welcome to ReachMD, Catherine. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Catherine, why did you write this book? You know, it was entirely selfish, I have to tell you, Leslie. In my early 40s, I noticed that something had changed. I'd been an investigative journalist for all my career, and I'd taken a few years off to stay at home and raise my two little boys. And when it was time for me to go back to work as a journalist, I found that things that I had always taken perfectly for granted were no longer at my fingertips. Instead of being able to look at a huge stack of documents and sort of skim through them and get what I wanted, I'd go all the way to the bottom and realize I still hadn't learned anything. People's names were elusive, the names of movies, the titles of books, things I'd just taken for absolutely granted no longer available to me. And I said to myself, what on earth is going on here? And it took me another five years to catch on to the fact that a lot of other people were going through the same thing. I think I was just a little earlier than most. Now, you talked to many of the top researchers in neuroscience. How successful were you in getting them to actually talk to you about these issues? I was phenomenally successful. I never had a better time in my life, frankly, because as I say, I've been an investigative journalist for 30 years, and what happens to us most of the time is people slam the phone down in our faces or refuse to see us, etc. That was never the case with the scientists I interviewed. You know, one of the facts of life is that scientists, particularly bench scientists, don't get very much opportunity to talk to their work except to other scientists. So when this journalist shows up and is utterly fascinated and hanging on every word, it's like a picnic. And people were tremendously helpful, tremendously forthcoming, very, very supportive. And to this day, um, you know, I have a really strong alliance both with NYU and with Penn and several other schools as well. Now, for many of us, myself included as a clinician, it's difficult for us to figure out what's normal forgetfulness. Most of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s do experience these moments. How do you know when it's pathology and when it's just normal aging? Well, it would be nice if there was a blood test, you know, and the fact is that in not too long there will be a blood test. We're looking at the development of biomarkers in the blood, in the cerebral spinal fluid, and in the urine that are going to be tremendously helpful in determining when proteins are beginning to aggregate in a way that they should not. But this is still currently under investigation or really not there yet. And that puts clinicians in a really difficult position. I've discovered that basically anyone who went to medical school in the 70s has the same classic joke that apparently was handed out during the 12 minutes that were spent on uh, what they called then senile dementia. The joke, which is not funny, is... Well, you know, it's not when you can't figure out what you did with your keys. It's when you forgot you came in a car. That's wrong. 
That is just flat out inaccurate. Clinicians have been relying on self-reports and reports from family and close friends and sometimes colleagues. And this is turning out to be kind of inaccurate. By the time a family shows up with the patient and says, you know, doc, he is just not remembering anything, this is way too far down the road. The person you actually have to pay attention to is the patient. When the patient comes in and says, you know, I really am having memory problems, I'm just not as sharp as I used to be, this could be a number of things. We could be talking about depression, of course. There could be a thyroid imbalance. This patient could be taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs. This patient could be taking hypertensive medications. There are a slew of medications. I think every one of them is covered in my book that can create cognitive dysfunction that is often either just brushed away or, or passed off as nothing and then in some really extreme cases is misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. But we have to pay attention to what the patient is saying. If the patient is saying, this is progressive, it's getting much worse, I notice that I'm screwing up several times a day, it's now worth sending the patient for a full cognitive evaluation. And I would err on the side of caution here rather than putting your arm around the patient's shoulder and saying some inane thing like, you know what, it's happening to me too. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many people have reported that that's exactly what their physicians have said. And sadly, the the seven individuals that I interviewed who were in their 50s or early 60s who were already diagnosed with Alzheimer's missed several years of possible treatment early on because their physicians said exactly that to them. The other thing that we learned in the 70s was if a patient came in thinking they may have Alzheimer's, that they clearly don't. That's absolutely incorrect. Okay. <laughs> and, that, and that's unfortunate. <laughs> so much for medical know, school. <laughs> this is what was taught, but it's not accurate. The notion that anyone who is self-aware enough to think they might have Alzheimer's doesn't have Alzheimer's makes absolutely no sense at all. Because Alzheimer's is not a disease that crops up suddenly. It's not like, you know, one day you don't have the mumps and the next day you do. This is a disease that develop slowly over a very long period of time. And the studies that are coming out today show that the seeds of Alzheimer's disease are planted most likely in the early 40s, if not before. And so anyone who's going to experience this is going to have an incremental change over years. So when a person says to you, that they really feel like there have been substantial changes in memory, then you really have to start talking about what's memory and what's attention. And that's something I spend a lot of time on in my book because normal changes in midlife are typically frontal lobe changes in attention. And they are qualitatively different than what people experience when they experience frank changes in memory, such as vocabulary words they've known all their lives they now don't know. That would be cause for substantial concern. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Catherine Jacobson-Raymond. Catherine is a founder of Managing the Midlife Mind, an organization that helps corporations support the cognitive needs of their older employees. We're currently discussing forgetfulness in middle age. Catherine, you went on this three-year journey to discover the cause of your own forgetfulness. What was the most surprising thing you found? 
Well, there were so many things, really. I don't think I understood the correlation between sleep and attention and sleep and consolidation of memory. Like a lot of women, I had learned to wake up at the drop of a pin. If a child turned over in bed, I was up. I had developed a sort of hypervigilant sleep pattern so that if a bird landed on the roof, I was up. And I really was not getting anywhere near enough sleep. I was at somewhere around six hours a night, and there seemed to be nothing I could do about it. If I got into bed earlier, I was up. It didn't matter. It was a real problem, and I knew it was, but I don't think I knew how directly related it was to how much I was going to remember and how well I would encode information. And so as I figured that out and I started to work through the sleep problems, I noticed that things had changed, and one of the things that I can do now that I couldn't do before is sleep about eight hours a night, and I am astonished by how much more information I can manage just based on that. Now, in your book, Carved in Sand, you talk about how there are gender differences, which you've alluded to a bit in terms of our sleep patterns, but also in attitudes towards forgetfulness. How would you describe those gender differences? This is not a universal, by the way, because I've talked to so many men who are deeply, deeply concerned about their memories and are, you know, they make no bones about it. But one of the more amusing things that used to happen to me is that I would be at a a philanthropic event or a cocktail party or whatever, and people would ask me what I was doing, and some man would say to me, well, I really don't have any issues like that. I, I have a selective memory. And I would just to be about to ask, and what does that mean, when the wife would appear and say, <laughs> you have a selective memory, dear? Yes, I do. I remember what I want to remember. And the wife would then say, how about our anniversary? Did you select for that? What about when you forgot to pick up Jimmy from soccer? How about that? Mm. And it turned out that for a lot of men, this so-called selective memory was possible because they had such phenomenal support staff. They had secretaries, they had a wife, they had people reminding them right and left. No one really expected them to remember much of anything, and therefore they could afford to have the selective memory. So what I realized was that women tend to want to blame menopause for their situation. Almost all women would say to me, I really know what's wrong with me. And I'd say, oh, you do? What is that? Well, it's menopause. Well, the fact is, it's not menopause. The fact is that menopause happens to occur in the vicinity of 50, and that is when these cognitive changes slam you, and so everyone has now correlated the two and thinks that one caused the other one, and that's not actually accurate from any of the studies that we have seen. There are things that occur in menopause, increased levels of depression, sleep problems, etc., that can have an impact on memory, but it is not menopause that causes the changes. So those are two really significant differences. And another one I find totally fascinating, and it's sort of from an evolutionary point of view, the things that men and women are capable of remembering are sort of different, the way they remember. A woman will want landmarks. She'll say, you ask for directions. Okay, you get off the highway at exit so-and-so, and you'll go past the Nordstrom's. And then, you know that cute little restaurant we went to <laughs> last week? You'll see that on the corner, and they'll give directions based on landmarks. A man does not give directions that way typically. They say, you head due west. <laughs> right around the time you see the Texaco, you head north for three blocks. And it's really a different way of navigating. So there are some really fascinating gender differences. 
But the thing to remember here is that as far as I can determine from my, you know, less than enormous survey, but more than 300 people in midlife, that men and women both experience these changes in basically in equal numbers. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. We've been discussing Carved in Sand about midlife forgetfulness with the author, Katherine Jacobson-Raymond. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months of free streaming for your office or home. If you have comments or suggestions, please give us a ring at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.